Before we begin our Torah study today, let's pray together. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We're reading this week from the very last portion of uh, the five books of Moses. We're reading the last words of Moses, what he wants to convey to the children of Israel prior to his death. This is the time when he enters into his last days. And you remember Moses' last words uh, that we read about uh, a few days ago last week, choose life. Say that with me choose life. And he was telling the children of Israel, choose life. These are words of wisdom. Choose life and it'll go well with you. And it's interesting that he wanted to convey that because it was at a time when he was going to lose his life. He was going to pass away. And so he was not filled with, with great sorrow or regret. He had a moment of disappointment. You remember he was arguing with the Lord, let me go into the promised land. And the Lord said, no, I won't let you go. It turns out later on the Lord had um, a plan for Moses to set his feet down in the promised land. Do you remember he was there on that mount with Elijah and Yeshua and some of Yeshua's disciples. So the Lord had something even better planned for Moses. But Moses had to deal with his own sense of disappointment because all that he had hoped to fulfill in his life would have been consummated by leading the children of Israel across the Jordan River into the promised land. And the Lord said, no, you can't do that. But what helped Moses, and we read about it in, in the, the words of this week's reading, what helped him was to think about what's ahead. And when he started taking his eyes off of himself and his own hopes for himself, and he put his focus on what God wanted to do through others after him, he was filled with, with vigor and filled with motivation and excitement about the faithfulness of God. And I tell you, he is a fantastic example for us. The life that we live is important, but we can never fulfill everything that God wants to do. It's going to take many generations working together. And it's necessary to appreciate those who have gone before us, but to think also about the work ahead for the generations to come. And Moses has that in mind, and it's encouraging him. And so he is encouraging others. And it helps him have an attitude that can be described with our one of our favorite Hebrew words, kadima. It's a forward-facing attitude. Moses did not give in to that temptation to long for the good old days. Many of us, when we're facing challenges or disappointments, we wish we could go back to the way it was. But Moses learned something. Whenever the children of Israel did that, whenever they longed for those good old days, it was nothing but trouble for him, for God, and for the people doing it. Do you remember the children of Israel? They, they remembered, oh, the melons, the garlic, the leeks. Mm, Egypt was so great. And they forgot 
that their newborn children were being ripped out of their hands and slaughtered. They forgot the cruelty of the taskmasters and all that went along with that. When people idealize the past and want to go backwards, it's a sign of trouble. Kadima, forward. Keep aiming forward. As well, Moses is, uh, is aware of something that can be described in the term Lador Vador, from generation to generation. The work is too great for one generation. It requires many generations. And uh, Moses is taking heart because the next generations are going into the promised land. And he's, he's as excited about that as you could expect him to be if he himself were going in. And I think it's a great example for us to be encouraged by what the next generation in our own life is doing and what the generation after that as well is doing. So Moses was strong and he was hopeful before the people, even the face of um, his, his soon death. But there's also one other thing that we should pay attention to, that Moses recognizes that he is not the ultimate redeemer of the people. He can't be. The scriptures reveal that Moses, though he's, he even wrote this himself, he was the meekest man, yet he, like the rest of us, is a sinner. And he has flaws. Now some people think that God forgets entirely all the sins of those who put their trust in him. But let me ask you something. Why did Moses not go into the promised land? Yeah, because of his sin. And how do you know that? It's in the Bible. And wait a minute. How can God forget, but it's written in the Bible? It's a serious question. Some people say, yeah, but that was before the New Covenant. Do you remember when Peter denied Yeshua three times? Well, how do you know that? It's in the Bible. <laughs> okay, so you know about Moses' sin, you know about Peter's sin, King David. Yeah, well, it turns out that Remember and forget means something different than you might have thought. <laughs> we'll, we'll explore that. Moses is not only a sinner, he's aware that he is a sinner. And he is aware that all of us are sinners too. And in this way, Israel is protected from idealizing Moses and then lifting him up as if he is so different from us that he can redeem us or he himself doesn't need redemption. But the Torah teaches us, and it's important to remember at Yom Kippur this, that even the high priests are sinners too. And that every high priest needs to make a sacrifice for himself because of his own sin, not just because of the sins of the children of Israel. Everyone is a sinner. And this protected Israel from believing a lie that the, the priestly tribe were superior. They were not. They were required to have a special heart. 
a heart of humility before God, to recognize their own sin. If they did not have that humility, they could not perform the priestly function, which was to help guilty people get reconciled with God by dealing with their guilt. And I don't mean psychological guilt, I mean the condition of having sinned against God, transgressed against God, and committed iniquities against God, and people needed to be able to to deal with that. And that's where the whole sacrificial system came in, and it was preparatory for um, Yeshua and for where we are today. And as we're preparing for Yom Kippur, I'm thinking about how meaningful Yom Kippur is for me as a Messianic Jew, and how it, it really ties together my understanding of Yeshua and what he has done, what God has done for us by coming down um, onto this earth, taking on a body and becoming Messiah and the atoning sacrifice for us. But as well, it helps me understand what we are going to be facing in eternity when there will be a time of judgment before God. Now, if, you're, if you've got the theory that God is is uh, suffering from eternal onset dementia and that he can't remember things. I want to disabuse you of that. Um, God can remember. What he does with what he remembers is very important. And so we're going we're gonna to look at something that will help us uh, prepare, I think, for Yom Kippur and for eternity. So I want you to turn to a reading that, that um, is, is not in today's normal readings. It's from Psalm, the Psalms, chapter 49, verses 7 through 9. And I want to read first, uh, the first verse here from the Jewish Publication Society translation, which is a very popular, um, very popular and historic English translation uh, of the Jewish people. And it says this, no man can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. No one can do it. Now it goes on, too costly is the redemption of their soul and it must be let alone forever. Another translation says, for the redemption of their life is costly and no payment is ever enough so that they should live on forever and not see decay. It's important to pay attention to the details of this. No one can, by any means, redeem his brother. Now, there are different aspects of redemption. For instance, someone could have fallen into indentured servitude or slavery because of a debt they couldn't pay. Someone could lose their land because of indebtedness. And they could be redeemed out of that servitude and their land could be redeemed with money. That's all it took was money. You pay the debt, the financial debt, and then redemption takes place. This is not talking about that because it's talking about something altogether different, which it makes clear. It's the redemption of their soul. No one can redeem another person's soul, it's too costly. It cannot be done. 
No payment is ever enough. No one can give to God a ransom. Who do you have to pay? The answer is explicit here. The ransom has to be paid to God in order to see someone set free, to see their soul set free. And no one can do it. You can't do it for yourself. That's why you can't do it for another person. Now, many people misunderstand the repentance of Daniel and his confessions. They try to apply it to their children and to their city and their generation. And they try to repent on behalf of another person. You can't do it. It's a misunderstanding. You can pray for the gift of repentance that leads to life. You can pray for open hearts. You can pray for contrition. But you cannot be a substitute. And there's a simple reason. You cannot go to eternity with that person and be presented as the reason why they're redeemed. You can't do it. It's not permitted. It's not possible. But many, many parents pray in sincere but misguided ways, Lord, I repent for my children's this and that, and it doesn't do anything. It's not useful. Everyone has to come before God and stand before God. In the same way, if uh, one son of yours beats the other one, and you go to the one who was beaten and say, forgive me, And the crying little one says, why? Um, because your brother beat you and I'm guilty. It won't make sense. What would be even worse is while the one is uh, crying for having been beaten, you go to the one who beat him and said, I forgive you. And I tell you, the one who's crying is going to say, wait a minute. They'll stop crying. It's like, wait a minute, this, this is not working right. You have to be careful about how you do these things and how you approach these things. Understanding this, everyone needs to face repentance themselves. And this Shabbat, Shabbat Shuvah, the Shabbat of returning, is also known as Shabbat Teshuvah, the Shabbat of repentance, which also means returning, turning around, turning away from sin, and turning to God. And this is a time to turn to God. It's a time to return to God. You might say, well, yeah, but I've been walking with the Lord, but everybody, everybody needs to return to God. It just depends on how much you need to return and about what we need to return. So this is a time of circumspection. But in Psalms, it's making something really clear. No one can redeem another person. No one can give to God the ransom the purchase price for their soul because the ransom for a person's soul, the ransom that allows them to live forever and to have eternal life with God, this ransom is too costly for one person to pay for another. You can't do it for yourself and you can't do it for another. Only God can pay that price to redeem a person. And this is at the foundation of our understanding of what God has done by coming as Yeshua the Messiah. The Lord himself has paid the ransom price. 
because we could never do it ourselves. And in this way, God has become the kinsman redeemer. He's become one of us who paid the price to redeem each of us from the bondage of sin and death. Yeshua came as Lord, yes, but also as redeemer. He came as Messiah and King. Now with this in mind, I want to turn to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and following, which talks about a really disturbing time and situation. And this is a time when people are standing before the Lord and being judged. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's bad news for everybody who thought that they could go to a civic center or an arena and raise their hand and be done with it if they said, Lord, Lord. But there's more to it. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So it's not enough to say, Lord, Lord, but you've got to do the will of the Father. You've got to do on earth the will of the Father. Now, the next things that Yeshua says could appear to be contradictory or at odds with this. It's starting in verse 22, many will say to me, that's Yeshua speaking, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Didn't we do the will of your Father in heaven? Didn't we did it. And I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Well, that's disturbing. It's very disturbing because it appears that these are people who were sincerely trying to do some of the things they had been told to do. In my name, you'll cast out demons. In my name, you'll heal the sick and so forth. And they said, they're standing before Yeshua. You know, it's that terrible day. And they're saying, Lord, in your name we prophesy. In your name we cast out demons. In your name we did miracles. Ta-da. <laughs> we want in. And he said, no. No. This is disturbing for anybody who thinks that miracles and supernatural activity are, are the irrefutable evidence of being right with God. They're not. You remember when Yeshua's disciples had been on assignment, they came back, and they were rejoicing because they had done what he said, and it worked. And they'd cast out demons, and they said, even the demons submitted to us. And Yeshua said, yes, but don't rejoice that demons submit to you. Rather, instead, Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There's a connection between those, that thought and what Yeshua is talking about here. So when you think about this, 
It's interesting that people will explain they did miracles and supernatural actions in Yeshua's name and he'll refuse them. And we have to ask what's going on. And I think I can tell you what's going on. I think they're coming to the Lord at that moment of judgment. And the question is, on what basis do you decide whether we get in or not? And their answer is, I prophesied. I cast out demons. I did miracles in your name. Their answer is, I have worthy deeds. I have redeemed myself because I did what you told me to do. So how is it that it's not those things that Yeshua is looking for, it's something else? What is it that he's looking for when he says the will of my Father in heaven has to be done? And the answer is, you have to get to that place that Yom Kippur prepares you for, where you can say, I have no worthy deeds. I have no worthy deeds. I cannot justify myself before you, God. I can't redeem myself. It's not possible. I am trusting in the redemption that you purchased for me. And I'm asking you with mercy, Lord, look not upon my sin, but upon my sacrifice. And my sacrifice is not the one I made, it's the one you made for me. The entire temple system, all that's connected to Yom Kippur was preparing the children of Israel for something. And that is to get accustomed to dealing with their guilt before God and the need for a sacrifice for it. And the priesthood was connected to this. So every, every child of Israel, every, every, every Jew would have to come to the, to the priest at the temple with a sacrifice. And the priest would know that they're guilty. Do you know how? Because they're there. That's, that's how he knows. They're all guilty. Everyone who's coming is guilty, how do you know? Because they're there with a sacrifice for their guilt. And the rule was, unless you're confessing your sin, nothing's happening. So they're presenting the sacrifice and the, the priest is examining the sacrifice to see, is it without blemish or defect? He's not examining the person, you know why? The person is blemished and defective. The person is guilty, every one of them. Not only that, the priest is guilty, he's the same. But he's examining the sacrifice to see, is it perfect? And if it is, then it's acceptable for that moment. And that was training. It was training for the children of Israel to begin to yearn for a perfect sacrifice that would be greater than the sacrifice of lambs and goats, calves and bulls. There would be a yearning, Lord, we need a sacrifice that really covers everything. 
And the Lord says, now that you appreciate that, now that your hearts are ready for it, I have to bring to a conclusion the entire temple system in order to inaugurate a new system that's based on Yeshua being your sacrifice. I remember talking to a reform rabbi in, on a train in Crimea, and I said, you know, we should have more fellowship. You guys should have more fellowship with us Messianic Jews. And he said, why? <laughs> and I said, because we agree on certain things, but you can't explain them, and we can. <laughs> and he said, like what? And I said, okay. Like why the temple system of sacrifice came to an end. Uh, how do you explain that? And his answer was, well, because it was time. And I said, yeah, but why was it time? And he said, well, because we no longer needed it. And I said, yeah, but why did we no longer need it? And he said, well, because we had come to a time where we didn't. And I started laughing. I said, you know, I am a rabbi. I understand what it means to talk in circles. I said, see, you can't explain it. We agree that the temple system has come to an end, but you don't know why. And I, I, we can tell you why. And the reason is God has provided a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice in Yeshua that brings to a conclusion the earlier system. And then I just smiled. I said, so that's just an example. That's why we should have fellowship. <laughs> Just one example. <laughs> at, at Yom Kippur, we have to understand what does it mean for God not to remember our sins? This is our practice. To not remember means, doesn't mean we don't have sin. It means when it's brought to his attention, the consequences of it aren't applied to us. But the grace and mercy and forgiveness that comes to us is with justice applied instead. Why do I say justice? Because that's what the scripture says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. There you go. He's just. So it's not just grace, it's grace and justice. I want you to get that. And this is why we come on Yom Kippur to practice and to anticipate. In light of what Messiah Yeshua has done for us, we anticipate that day, that final day, when we're going to be standing before him and he's going to say, okay, what's your answer? Because I think, we're going to be crying at that time. I think that even though there will be a sense of relief and expectation of, of acceptance, we are going to be acknowledging the heavy weight of our sin. And with that in mind, I want you to look at Zechariah chapter 12 because this really speaks about it. And we'll wrap up as we're looking at this. Zechariah 12 verse 10 is where we start, I'll pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. 
and they will look on me, the one they've pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives. So fascinating because to David was promised Messiah. But David also was a sinner. And who was the one that God used to restore David by confronting him with his sin? Nathan. Nathan the prophet is going to be weeping. The clan of the house of Levi, we're going to be weeping. And their wives, the clan of Shammai and their wives and all the rest of the clans and their wives. That will be our response. Because we will finally be dealing with everything that's been bottled up for all the eons. Isaiah 53 puts it so clearly. This is the last scripture we'll look at. It speaks about Yeshua, about Messiah. It says he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You see, he wasn't, he wasn't something special to look at. And we wouldn't see anything in particular that would draw us to him or cause us to desire him. Verse 3, he was despised and he was rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. The original meaning of despise means to turn your eyes away. When people saw him, they didn't want to look at him. We held him in low esteem. This is why Zechariah says they'll be weeping because, because our people will say, oh, what have we done? And there will be regret on one hand, sorrow and tears, but there will be recognition of love. This is our beloved. And we held him in low esteem. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, but we considered him punished by God and stricken by him and afflicted. And in fact, he was pierced. Do you see the connection? The one who was pierced. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. He was pierced not for his transgressions, but for our transgressions. He bore the weight of our iniquity. He suffered the punishment that we deserved so that we could receive the peace we don't deserve. And by the wounds that he suffered, we are being healed. Yom Kippur is a great time to practice. Standing before God and saying, I am guilty before you. I have no worthy deeds. I'm not going to be standing in the day of judgment saying, hey, I was a rabbi. <laughs> Give me a break. I'm going to be standing before Yeshua and saying, I have no worthy deeds. And in this way, Yom Kippur is a rehearsal 
And at the same time, it's powerful because we're saying now what we mean forever. I trust you. Don't look upon me and my guilt and don't look upon the sacrifices that I could make for you. Look upon him and the sacrifice because that's what I'm doing. I'm asking for your mercy. I put my trust in him. I couldn't redeem myself. And now I live for him. And to that, I think the Lord will say, okay, come on in. Welcome. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being merciful and being just. Thank you for becoming our redeemer. Thank you for becoming our Kippur, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Thank you for coming down, taking on a body and becoming the sacrifice for us once for all. And thank you for cleansing the temple, not the earthly temple, the heavenly temple, that then projected into the earthly temple a change forever. Lord, we love you. We have no worthy deeds. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? If you're standing alone, I encourage you to move so that you're not. Shalom. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face to you and give you his peace in the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. See you on Kol Nidre.